Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Book Pod with Corey Perkin, the fortnightly podcast that brings readers and writers together. Today we acknowledge the traditional owners of the Boona Wurrung Nation where this podcast is produced and pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to the Book Pod. I'm Corey Perkin and thank you for joining us today. This week we return to the world of fiction with Loveland, a compelling new novel by Melbourne writer Robert Lukens. Loveland is set in contemporary Australia and Nebraska in the United States, but also travels back in time to a post-World War II America of men damaged by their war experiences, naive and young brides, small-town secrets and abuse in marriage. It is the story of strong women and controlling angry men, and I am beyond thrilled to be joined by Loveland's creator, Robert Lukens. Robert, it's so lovely to meet you. Oh, it's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm a real fan of this book. I did not expect to. I have to confess I am not domestic noir, and let's mm-hmm. just give it that genre name because your book is, is way more intricate and complex than that. But that's how it was presented to me, mm. as it, you've been pigeonholed with this particular book yeah, <laughs> by the no, publishers. And, <laughs> and that's fine, you know, and it's such a difficult job. These publishers, reps, all these kind of people, it's, they can't sit down and give someone a half-hour treatise on these things. It's so hard. I, it's, I, actually, I, I noticed when I signed my contract, I looked in, into the weeds of the contract and there's a point where they just legally have to define what, what it is and it was described as a literary whodunit. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, all oh, right, okay, that's what I wrote, that's fine. Well, in the, well as a bookseller, of 12 years, which I was until last year, but in my book selling days, it, the, the publishing reps, of course, come mm. to you and they are flogging their wares. Yeah. And so they give you the elevator pitch mm-hmm. on, on the books that are the highlights on their list and the ones they think will suit your audience. But they will do these, you know, domestic noir yeah. or, or oh, there's just bodice burners. <laughs> there are yeah. all these kind of genres that are hilarious. But I do think for me, Loveland, when I, when I read the back of the book, I thought, okay, this is interesting. This is a story about abuse in marriage. Not sure is it me. It sounded like a bit of a thriller. Mm-hmm. But I was drawn – I hate to be so shallow as this, but I was really drawn by the cover mm. and also the fact that you've been published. This is your second novel and the first one did sell in my bookshop, although I didn't read it, but it was an honour to have the Everlasting Sunday four years ago in our shop and it sold. But also, as I said, in the hands of Alan and Unwin, they're such great, it's such a great publishing house for – backing strong Australian talent, which is on the ascent. I imagine you've had a kind of an interesting journey with them because your first book was not published by Alan and Unwin. No, no. My first novel was published through University of Queensland Press, who I adore to this day, and they're an amazing publishing house. Um, I think it was something to do with the way I, I suppose, I'm, I'm always quite happy to talk about this. It's a bit of a taboo in the publishing industry. People don't, talk, it's like sort of changing football teams. It's sort of, are you supposed to feel bad about changing teams and how did it happen and People assume that, oh, maybe something went wrong or you're unhappy, but it's absolutely not like that. I suppose I'm fairly 
interested in following my instincts with these things. And with my first novel, I only ever, I, I literally, I had no, no sort of ins in the publishing industry. I'd never published a word of fiction. I didn't have any contacts. I didn't have an agent, didn't have anything. So I, I, I finally, having spent about 25 years writing novels with abjectly not sending them out to be published, not one of them left my room. Uh, and I finally decided to send this one out. And I very naively, like childlike way, printed it out, put it in a yellow envelope and just posted it to University of Queensland Press. I think years Why ago, did you choose them as a Melbourne writer? Why did you think, oh, well, yeah, we'll I think go north? I'm originally from Brisbane. Okay. I grew up on the Sunshine Coast. I thought they must have been because <laughs> you're one of your characters, and we'll get to the book in a minute, but one of your characters in Loveland, it's, it starts in Brisbane. So, yeah. yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. But Yeah, and then they... I think I think somewhere very like in the 1990s. I think I've got a piece of paper that I wrote in 1996, which I very grandly wrote. It was sort of my plan, my literary plan for the future, um, and one of them was to to sign with Curtis Curtis Brown because it was the only agent I'd ever heard of. And I'd read an interview with Nick Earls, who in Brisbane at the time, and this was this was the 90s. I think in Brisbane, I just really attached myself to anyone who got out of Brisbane. Bands who like the go-betweens that got out of Brisbane, and Nick Earls was was this. He, it's kind of it's hard to to place him outside of Brisbane. I don't know how well known he is down here, but in Brisbane at the time, he was the guy that got out of Brisbane. This was Nick Earls. He there were ad campaigns for for Brisbane, like tourism campaigns, headed by Nick Earls. The fact that there was a literary figure sort of that was well known on the streets, um, and he was signed with the University of Queensland Press initially. Um, and so I just thought, in my naive way, okay, well that that must be a reasonable place to be published. And so when my book was when my book was finished, I sent I posted it to University of Queensland Press. They're the only people I posted it to, and I posted it to Curtis Brown, literally in a yellow envelope addressed. I didn't look on their website and check any. They weren't taking submissions. I just sent it in, and then I didn't hear anything for eighteen months. I didn't get a receipt that they got it. I didn't get anything, and I just carried on in my way. And then in the same week, I got a phone call from University of Queensland Press. Uh, first contact with them was an offer to publish it. And two days later, I got a call from uh, Grace Heifetz, my now agent, offering to represent me. Ah, you see, <laughs> that's how it works. <laughs> and it, uh, and it all just very strangely and uh, uh, just knitted together. And um, and and I had a, an incredible experience with University of Queensland Press with that book coming out. But as I said, I, I I'd never sent it out to anyone. I never. I was just this sort of. I think in in a way, I was kind of shielding myself from the publishing industry. I've got a very long and um, I think for a long time, a not very healthy relationship with the publishing industry. I think my way of keep on to keep on going was I had this really big chip on my shoulder about I'm just I'm just going to write in my room. This isn't for publication. Um, I'm not focused on that. I'm trying to sort of you know wearing the hair shirt and whipping my back. This has to be difficult. This has to be awful. This has to be the artist's journey. All these silly kind of childish ideas you have about writing. Well, I'm glad you came out of the bedroom and stopped whipping <laughs> yourself because I wouldn't say for a second that this is a commercial, com, you know, I mean, I, that's sort of degrading commercial novels, I suppose, but it's subtle and there's a very strong literary quality to this book. It's not a difficult read by any mm. means, but its characters have complicated, interesting backstories and it's it's not a, a quick kind of what I'd say an airport read, you know. No. Uh, but having said that, if I was travelling to London, mm. uh, this, this book <laughs> would keep me, it's a page turner and it would keep me engaged. So I'm glad Glad you made the move to Alan and Unwin because they um, nothing against University of Queensland Press. I love them too, but Alan and Unwin, as I said earlier, really do back young emerging talent, middle career authors, mm. and they have uh, have a vast reach. And so it came. It arrived in bookshops in March, I think, mm, from memory. That's right. And and as I said, it was not one that I would have necessarily picked up, but I was so deeply intrigued. The the cover drew me in, I, I read the back, I thought, this sounds amazing, I know Robert Lucan's name, and then I was in. So I wondered if you can give us kind of the bookseller elevator pitch, <laughs> which I'm so used to doing because, of course, that's what people say when they come into a bookshop, what's this about? So you've got to get it in about a minute. But how do you explain the journey of May and Casey? Yeah, I suppose the the very brief <laughs> elevator pitch that I tend to give when I'm, my publisher will hate me that I... I haven't got this all down wrote, but um, essentially it's the story of May who travels from Australia to a small town Loveland in Nebraska, uh, ostensibly to to settle an inheritance, but in the process to escape her marriage. And, and while there discovers she has a shared dark history with her grandmother, Casey. 
it's not obvious or apparent initially to May, of course. So May is, I would suggest, working class family, mm. contemporary Brisbane. And as you say, that she's in she's in a pretty difficult relationship with her husband who, with whom she's been connected for many years, even going yeah. back to when they were teenagers. They have a son who's also showing showing patterns of behaviour that mm. she feels are very like her husband. So that is also quite alarming to her too, that tension with her son who she adores. I found very, very interesting indeed. But she, her grandmother, who who was an American, she's never really May's never really been aware of Casey, her grandmother's story, which I found so interesting. That in families, so often people don't share. In my own family, I think we all tend to overshare probably yeah. <laughs> too much. But but some families do keep secrets, and the fact that Casey had come from America, and May had never really inquired of this quiet, mouse-like woman in the kitchen. Mm. And it wasn't really until she dies that May discovers who Casey was. Yeah, I think I'm always fascinated by um, that kind of separation that can be between people, even people that – and maybe this is the fact that I'm – even in my previous novel, Everlasting Sunday, this is, a, I suppose, a bit of an overriding theme and people found this this kind of – this veil between people, this these barriers between people, this idea that you just want to sometimes you just want to throttle them and say, can't you two just sit down and just talk for once? Can't you just actually speak to each other? And I think that's something I'm slightly preoccupied in my writing. Um, I'm fascinated by the way we, it's I suppose it's my experience of living that we we know the version of each other that the other person chooses to share. You know, I've people that I've shared the same 10 square metres of carpet with at work for the last 12 years and I don't know anything about their lives. I don't know anything about their sort of internal character. And I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated that by that in terms of family as well um, and the kind of things, the kind of material things and external things that can that can create that barrier. The, the characters in this story, so May, her Mother Rose and Casey, they are tired these are people that are coping. They've spent their whole life having to cope. And in some ways, they, because of their material position and the things they've been through in their life, it's almost as if they've just always put themselves last because they've always, they can't just wake up in the morning and think, how can I express myself today? How can I more closely live with my family? They wake up every day and they, they get through the day. And so their personalities and their, their sort of true selves aren't able to sort of float to the surface. I often think of this the characters in this story, they're almost submerged in water and they occasionally are able to get to the surface and take a gulp of air. But these these women in this family who who you sense that they there's this need for them to connect, but there's always this barrier. And to be honest, a lot of the time through this is they are tired and they are busy and they are just trying to get through their days and through their weeks and it almost seems like that kind of familial connection is a, is a luxury they can't afford. And you you present them like that, but also there is an anxiety. So each of them, and I'd like to talk about this inherited, whether this was inherit, whether you can have inherited victim of abuse mm. and patterns of behaviour that men of a particular kind are going to take advantage of, but and whether they see the gaps there. Mm. But these women, I felt, were anxious every day, as you say, they wake up, but they're anxious as well as drowning. Mm. And particularly with Casey, when we go back to her experience in in the fifties after she's married her former soldier in Nebraska, you did really feel that every day that she woke up, mm. she was nervous. Mm. She was walking on eggshells, yeah. and then of course it all unfolds as to why, and she mm. realizes that she's married a man that she didn't. But what is it about these patterns of behaviour? Did you were you trying to really focus on that this can be an, an hereditary thing with women, or is it just the sort of the luck of the draw for these three women? Yeah, I think I'm. It's interesting, isn't it? I think it's. I'm interested in the in the in the parts of our inheritance that are that are subconscious, the parts that are taught to us through behaviour as opposed to taught to us through direct contact, and these ways of coping again. This idea of of coping, and I think maybe some people. If you're very lucky in life, you don't feel that that ever-present kind of pressure to cope through the day. Days are things to be explored rather than things to be to be got through. And I think I'm, I'm interested. I don't actually like. I don't propose an answer to this in this question. I think sometimes there's, there's the idea to, especially with the male characters in this novel, that idea of just inheriting patterns of behaviour just seems too neat to me. It seems too cute, and it seems like too much of a of a let off. And I think I am fascinated by. I suppose it's the human condition that's kind of unanswerable is the how much of it is nature, is our nurture, will and nature, yeah. nurture stuff. Mm. And I'm fascinated by that. And I think sometimes it's it's too much of a let off. It's too easy to say it's these these things are just directly passed on from one to the other through some kind of 
magical inheritance or even just through behaviour? And I think obviously the answer is something much more complicated in between those. But um, I suppose particularly in relation to these male characters, like this is not a story of a simple, neat solution that they inherited these these qualities from the previous generation because that just seems it's it's too neat for me and it's too cute and it's, I don't think it's as simple as that. Well, um, and then and then there's Rose, who is uh, Casey's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and May's mother, who who can see an opportunity to break the patterns. So, mm. so for our listeners, and this is giving nothing away, of course, but Casey has died in Brisbane, and she has left to the family what you call a boathouse, mm. which, in Australian terms and in Melbourne terms, I guess we think of those little, little bathing boxes around sheds, yeah. around yeah around Port Phillip Bay. <clears throat> but of course, it's much more than that. And yeah. and you can tell us about a boathouse in a second, but. There is the situation where Rose looks at her daughter's life and says, you need to take this opportunity. This is your way out. This, yeah. is, this inheritance is the thing that can break the cycle. Yeah. And May is not really sure what all that means until <laughs> she arrives in Nebraska and then yeah. she, she, she has the strength to see this as some sort of escape. But tell us about the boathouse. Yeah, so the uh, the boathouse is simply a small ramshackle wooden structure on the on the edge of the lake in in Nebraska that um, we learn through the story is essentially just a, a utilitarian little building that would have it was once a part of this much much grander loveland this kind of weekend retreat for the rich and uh, a big beautiful guest house back in the day yeah, yeah yeah and there was once a great promenade and a Ferris wheel and on Sunday nights there would be fireworks displays and the rich would come and dangle their feet in the cool waters of Nebraska during the spring and the summer. And these are places that really existed all across America and often they were in the sort of, so obviously Nebraska is the almost the f- centre of the centre, it's a real flyover state, and the rich would weekend at these places. And, and, and in America now they're, they're dotted all across the landscape, the, sh- the husks of these old grand places that... Uh, were sort of booming right before the Great Depression. And obviously the Depression came in, these places fell into disrepair, and you can still find them now, these um, old rusted Ferris wheels all dotted around Gosh, America. Gosh, how melancholy. Yeah, yeah, they're amazing. And, uh, you know, and I'm, I was fascinated by those and I was fascinated by finding these places in Nebraska because I've been fixated on Nebraska since I was a child. So, <laughs> so, so when Okay, why? <laughs> I remember being about... It's a specific moment. Most of my my life is is sort of strange, ethereal moments I can't pin down. But this one I remember specifically. I was probably about eight or nine and I was going through my family's record collection, which I wanted to do, and there was like Eurogliders and Pseudo Echo and all the rest of it. And somebody in my family had a copy of Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska album. And I don't know if you're familiar with that front cover, but it's this incredibly striking photograph. It's a black and white photograph taken from the inside of a – beat up old American pickup truck looking out at this this snow-capped, distant, uh, black and white, perfectly flat horizon, this, Im- this impossibly distant horizon. And at the time I was this board short wearing, zinc creamed up, sunshine coast kid who knew nothing of the world. And so this may as well have been Mars to me. This was the most fascinating image. And I remember almost like a cliche, I sat there cross-legged on the floor staring into this vinyl cover, imagining what was this place, Nebraska. And I was a kid who tend, and I suppose I'm an adult now too, tends to get very fixated on things. And this became a point of, of sort of eternal return to me, this, this image of Nebraska. And as the, as the years went on, I would learn about the real Nebraska. I would read encyclopedias that my parents had and I would borrow books and I would watch films and I would um, read histories in Nebraska. But as much as that, it was a place that I just developed this personal mythology to, this Charles-like place. It was this blank place on the map. Um, I'm assuming you went to Nebraska at some point. I'm going to Nebraska for the very first time in five days. My goodness And me. it was very much a part of the um, – it was a huge decision to me and an important decision to, to not go to Nebraska prior to the writing of this novel. I vacillated on it for – for several years. So this book's existed in different forms for about seven years. So I'm assuming Google has been a huge help here. The residents of small Nebraskan lakeside towns have been a great help in this. Really? I've got it's it's you, a, it's have, a, you have friends in, in little places. I, I do Nebraska. I do now. I've got the I've got I've, I've got videos sent to me by the by the mayor of Carter Lake who drove around town in his car with his camera out the window narrating the entire town to me. I've got reams of documents from the 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 president and sole member of the Carter Lake uh, Historical Society sent me everything about this. I've been in touch with um, academics from the University of Nebraska. I've been in touch with everyone there and it was this – but I 
I just felt this block about going there and it's something to do with my complicated relationship with this place, Nebraska, because this is a place that I know so well, so intimately, but it's a place of my imagination. It's the place of a 10-year-old child imagining what this place could be because it also became a great refuge for me. It was always going to be the place if, if everything in my life went irredeemably wrong, if everything broke to a point that it couldn't be repaired, I could go to Nebraska. Nebraska was a place I could go to and it was a blank place on the place on the map. It's like Paul Simon's <laughs> Graceland, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I could disappear into the horizon. Yeah. And so it needed to in some ways exist in this this mythological sense to me. And and again, it's a place I know so well. And and to me I, I, I love existing in that state of sort of half knowledge. That it's a place I know the the true details of so well and the and the dreamlike state as well and it's a place full of myth and dreams and ghost stories i i became i'm really fixated on i've got um basically every roadside guide to nebraska you can get so these are just travel guides and they say like go down highway 75 and turn right at at the well and then you'll find you know the world's largest playable guitar or the big longest cotton ball cotton reel so um, so this like, so <laughs> so this lake loveland is the, is the setting for your novel mm. and this this lake as you as you say it it had its its heyday has long gone mm. and not only has the guest house and the ferris wheel and everything um, gone to rack and ruin but the lake itself which mm. i felt was a gave us an interesting provocation regarding climate change and the mm. ecology and the systems and that the water is totally yeah. uh, ruined and nobody's using the lake anymore. Did you have an actual lake in Nebraska upon which you based your lake? I, I did. I think I um, – so I suppose Carter Lake was an initial source for it, but these are dotted all across um, – any anywhere slightly e- east or west of the Missouri or the Mississippi, there are dotted these – because this is, a, this is a stream of water that is always evolving, change of direction. So ever since – the intensive logging started in the 18th century. You would just get these these log jams, and so you would you would get literally they were just flowing the entire forest down this lake all the way down to the coast, and they would they would hit a blockage and they would build up. And if there was a bit more of a flow, one day you would just wake up and the river had completely diverted around a canyon. So something that was in the state of Nebraska woke up in the state of Iowa because um, this is a river that was constantly changing through through human involvement. And so you do get these these pockets and, and so many of these little f- what were once beautiful freshwater lakes that were constantly sort of whenever there was a, a big rainfall, they would get renewed by the river. Um, but they've now been cut off. And so I suppose something like Carter Lake, but there are there are dozens of these lakes all across Nebraska that just, as I said, I like to sit in that sort of state of of half knowledge. I, I like not quite having a full visual image of these places. I like them existing in this kind of fugue area. But the I suppose the lake that the Loveland Lake um, that we have here is is something that I have this sense that over time it has just reduced and reduced and reduced. And it's, and in that same way that when you boil down a sauce for dinner, it, it intensifies and it intensifies. And so you end up with this lake that's um, almost pulling the landscape around it. Everything, every, I always have this image that the, the lake in this town is almost like a plug hole and, and everything literally and metaphorically is kind of circling down into this lake. And even though it's, decrepit and full of algae and, and stinks and is toxic, it draws everyone to it. The town still for some reason revolves around this lake and, and I suppose my story in a way just keeps coming back to this lake. Well, May is, uh, at first glance, she is somewhat appalled, I guess, by the state of the lake but also the boathouse from the outside. When she enters the door, it is incredibly well kept mm. and she is utterly shocked who is the person who's looking after this. So a lovely friendship emerges there. But she does have a sense of wanting to re- restore the lake and contribute to the community. Mm. And as we read through, we are left wondering, is this her future? Mm. So I'll just leave it there and readers can find out for themselves. But how did you, when you were creating May's first impressions of this area, what what were you hoping to convey in terms of a link with her grandmother, the great unknown? Very much you get the sense that she just wants to get the deal done, get mm. the place looking good and hand it over to the realtors to sell. But is that where the, the writing was taking you or did you have in your mind the whole time that she was going to form this connection 
with the place and with her grandmother. Yeah, I think it, that definitely evolved through the writing. So I think I have a – I do – I'm, I'm driven entirely by my sort of instincts and the subconscious in my writing. I had um, a feeling that was evolving as you were yeah. writing, actually. And I think it was, as again, these things, I tend to, I think, because when you write from the subconscious, your mind, I know for me, it can reach for unusual, to unusual, unexpected places, but also it can just reach for very familiar things. So there are some very archetypal things here. It's a small house on the side of a lake. It's a small town. These things that we've seen before. Um, and I think initially my... My instinct was driving me to a, to a neater solution. It was it's it's much neater if she went to this place and found this newfound sense of freedom and was able to slowly, carefully open up and discover herself and um, and the lake to act as this kind of metaphor for that as she cl- she cleaned the place. But obviously, these things are much more complicated than that, and we don't get off that easily. And so, I think part of the story of May, and and we see a lot of this story from her point of view, she's never. She's, she's scared on some level of allowing herself to be fully open to thinking about her situation. It would terrify her to think she's suddenly in this new place and she's, she's free from her husband, even if it's just for a few days and she's in this other side of the world. She can never really allow herself. To, she's, you almost get the sense that she, if she fully stopped one day and thought about her situation and what was happening, it would be intolerable. It would be, she wouldn't be able to to cope with it. So she kind of deceives herself and she lives in this slightly sort of veiled fog-like existence because that's just how she gets through it. She can't think about it. If I stop and think about this, I'll, I'll collapse. I just have to keep going. You're listening to The Book Pod, an audio community that brings writers and readers together. A lot of this story is her arriving in Loveland and just through her circumstance there and through meeting Jean, who has this amazing sort of, who is a woman who lived in Loveland at the time of her grandmother Casey and has and, and we learn doesn't give away too much because it happens quite early on she's she's sort of bestowed she's become the custodian of this old house she feels this kind of sense of obligation to it and Jean is this great catalyst for May Jean is someone who we feel like she is she's unburdened she is full of opinion she's full of life she drinks red wine she swears she sings along to the radio she's this catalytic sort of presence for May and so part of part of the story I suppose is about May sort of floating to the surface of her consciousness and occasionally allowing herself to realize this is my life and this is where I am and I do have some agency but it's that kind of she's coped all the way along by by shielding herself from that and just kind of trying to float along without thinking about where she is. The violence in the book is um I think really beautifully handled because there's there is nothing more menacing than I I mean I think than the really hidden secretive emotional abuse that in this case men can impact upon women sometimes you know a clock on the head is immediate and done mm. but this eating away that occurs yeah. in both marriages is really profound and interesting and I know that the reviewers, some of the reviewers of Loveland have focused on you being a male writer, mm-hmm. how terrifically well you've handled particularly those two female characters in Casey and May's story. So I need to ask you because I mm. think men and women can write across gender, we can do it all, you know, a good character is a good character regardless who's, who, of who's written it. Mm. But you have really captured, I think, the fear that women can can, can experience sometimes when there's a male that's trying to gaslight you or control you subversively and sometimes over a long period of time. You've really nailed that. How did you do that? Oh, thank you very much. And that's obviously really gratifying to hear. And the first thing I'd say is this is absolutely not something I took lightly. I did not launch into this book saying, I can write about anyone I like. This is for, I Yes, it's I, a hashtag me too moment. I'm I, going to make the most of it. If you if you saw what I've been through, for, if anyone saw for the last seven years of my that I've been writing this book the way I – and so for the vast majority of the time of writing this book, it was never intended to be published. I write much more that isn't published than published. So since my first novel was published, this is the third or fourth novel I've written – in the same way that I think if you're a musician, you don't release every song you ever write into the world. It's just that obviously writing a novel takes a little longer sometimes. But um, this started as something very different. Um, and originally it wasn't even a piece of fiction. So I first started I, I wrote, started writing this a couple of years before my first novel was published. So this is something I've lived with for a long time. And, I and think was it set in Nebraska as well? Originally it wasn't even a novel. Okay. It was – it genuinely was – I. 
I just had come to this, the conversa- this conversation about male violence, male coercion, male control was something that obviously I thought about before, but it was something that was just, it was in our, it was coming, you know, these conversations where you keep talking about them, things were being discussed. And I wanted to really take that to heart. And I really, I was just so fascinated and I thought it was just my kind of duty, I suppose, to really interrogate this idea of male control and coercion, starting with myself. When I talk to my male friends about this, we all talk about how terrible it is and it's how awful, but it's always something happening somewhere else. It's some other men. It's it's somewhere somewhere this kind of imagined distant place. But it's not. It's us. It's it's I'm a man, my friends are men, we are men and we live in this society where this is happening. It, it is us. So I just wanted to look at is this a capacity that all men carry within themselves? Is this something that I carry within myself and and I hide I sort of it's in my dark blind spot. Well, so you I, make us consider this with the son whose name escapes me. Uh, Francis. Yeah, Francis yeah. is you you glad uh, I could remember that. <laughs> yeah. Um, who's who's a uh, 18, 19 years old, yeah, something 17, like that. Yeah. Yes, yeah. And I I sense that he senses mm. that he could be becoming like his father and he's rather fearful of that. Yeah, um, so I suppose, well, yeah. so, and then as I, and this really wasn't initially just, and it was never intended to be published, I really just sat there almost doing a kind of complete forensic interrogation of myself and looking at myself and these kind of capabilities. And, and it was just, I guess, just a stream of conscious kind of thought process. But then it, I'm a writer. This turned into a book. That's the way, I'm not a social worker. I'm not an epidemiologist. I My brain <laughs> works these things out through books. So it became a story. But initially... And again, this was never intended to be published because the world doesn't need to read this. It was a book focusing entirely on the male characters. I wanted to really look at what's the kernel of this. What? Uh, so I wrote all about their backstories, their family histories, the things they'd been through, their sort of internal psychology. And I'd keep getting to the end of this novel and being completely unsatisfied. I'd just hit a wall. And so I'd throw it away and I'd start again and again. I did this maybe... Five or six completely rewritten from scratch. So was it the female characters who showed you the way to this book? I think it was, it was in a way, I think initially it actually was more my relationship with these men. So having spent six novels with these men and I found so many reasons and so many excuses but no justification for this and having spent six novels with these men, I really started to consider my role as the author of this. Like In the, the universe of this novel, the, the one great power and privilege that I provide is, is someone's point of view. And so it was having spent six novels with these men and just reached sort of the end of the road with them, it was a really conscious, punitive act from me to push them outside of this novel so they, they exist in this novel through their actions and their culpability, but this became entirely the story of these women and how they navigate these almost immovable objects. And have you and have you come to the conclusion why these men why why men do this? I mean, I'm not the person to answer that. And if I, well, n- no, and that's why I got to the end of this novel. And you know, if I was I was the jury for these men and I I expelled them from the novel um, because in in a very real way. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter in terms of... There are no excuses. No, like I said, there's, well, there's plenty of excuses and there's plenty of reasons, but they, they can't possibly stack up. And as I said, I'm a novelist. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a, I, 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 don't know, I don't know if anyone could claim to know the answer to these questions, but, but it became uh, within this universe of people that I came to know so well, like they became my life, these characters. And I was angry and I was... Hot blooded, and I, I, it's like Game of Thrones or something. I expelled them beyond the Great Wall, and I pushed these men out, and I don't feel sorry for it. And uh, I'm not suggesting that that's how we should solve this in the real world. This was just a very specific instance of this. Is I felt that anger. I felt that I wanted to. That's what I could do in that moment. I had agency, and where these other characters didn't, so I expelled these men out of the story. But that's why we love novels. Yeah, that's why we well, love exactly. what you we guys can... <laughs> do. <laughs> because you provoke us and you make us maybe come up with the solutions. That's why so many thousands of people in Australia are in book clubs. Yeah. Because we try and then work out. But I think to, uh, it's, it, it became very important to me that I wasn't trying to provide some solution to this by damaging these men or expelling this men or whatever, whatever wrath we could, we could put on these men 
that didn't solve anything for these women. It didn't solve anything for these characters. It hurt them again. It was just their violence sort of final act. It was these, like, when violence hurts everyone in both directions, violence hurts everyone. Like, even we look at, at Casey in this, who, who we discover early on, found a way out of this relationship, and but she's damaged through her whole life. She be, she becomes this quiet, unknowable grandmother in the house who you know, just even could could never connect with her granddaughter because of the effects of these things that she carried through her. So it became very important to me. This wasn't some kind of, and it's interesting, I never even considered this word, but I've had people interview me and they keep mentioning this word about revenge and people saying like, oh, so they kind of, some people I don't wonder see it if it's revenge. a revenge. I don't see it as revenge. Not at all. And it evolved. I, and it Revenge implies a, a a will or or a sense of options, and these are these are women who had all their options taken away from them. So anyway, it was just very important to me that I didn't try and solve anything for these women or tie anything up with a neat bow. Not to say that I don't want it to be a satisfying <laughs> novel, but um, I, I very much took my place as I and I think it's it is it is very much something to be considered that I am a man writing this novel. I don't think that should be sort of pushed off the table. That I is, don't think so and, either. And also, and I, I fully, ex- I think the first place I start writing anything, writing from any characters, is I accept fully in my heart at the start that I will get everything wrong. That's my starting place for everything. And so from then on it just becomes a, a, an experiment in empathy. And then you can write this novel. But then also the really important factor, and I think it's something that's not considered enough, is it took a really long time for me to decide to want to try and publish this. Just because I wrote it doesn't mean I should. And it took a lot of convincing from my agent, and it took. And I've never. What was the catalyst? It honestly was a discussion with my agent. So I'd, like I said, I'd written maybe three other novels before this that I just decided, which I loved and I thought were actually effective novels. But I just, I think I get a strange sort of. Um, I get a strange thrill out of writing things and and not <laughs> publishing them. I think I, I just love it. I love writing things for their own sake. I think it's partly due to this history where I've written things for a long time just for their own sake, and I'm probably too attached to that process of sort of writing the equivalent of like writing a poem and throwing it in the ocean. It gives me a bit of a thrill to write a novel and just and walk away from it. But I wrote well, this one, and it did, it did feel different and did feel special, and I felt attached to it in a way I hadn't before, and so I very sort of meekly passed it over to my agent and I just said, let me have it. Pass it, like read this and let me have it if this book should not be out there and not be read. And what did they say? She was incredibly supportive. Mm. And then I just said, we, so this, I've, more than anything else I've ever written, this was read by more people before publication than anything because I just, you know, by definition I'm not aware of my blind spots. I don't want to contribute to this conversation and just be an, you know, yeah, but you're not. But you see, this is what this is what I was saying before about you've captured women so brilliantly. It's not just that just that you're trying to capitalize on on this moment in time, which is you know we're now as a community terribly aware of yeah. secrets, what goes on behind doors, women being abused physically and emotionally, yeah. and so on and so forth. There are scenes like, for example, at the very beginning, uh, set in Brisbane, and May is trying to scratch together a, a wage, a living, to support mm. the family as uh, uh, looking after little kids yeah. and she's looking after a baby as a nanny. And now all of her frustrations with that baby in those first few pages and mm. the frustration of, and you know, I've got to get home and I've got mm. to cook the meal, I've got to – like that is a woman talking, Robert. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that is you've – got, you've, got, you've got right into – already you've in a few pages you've mm. presented a woman who is on the verge but we're not sure – yeah. On the verge of what, and so what is her get out of jail card? What what yeah. is it going to be? What's her moment of of awakening? And and I think that is just really brilliant. Well, thank you, and that's obviously great to hear. And I wouldn't, and I, I guess that's the great unknowable to me is how effective I was in those kind of things. But like I said, it's I suppose I tried to simultaneously approach this like I would write anything else from a place of this is kind of like original sin of being a writer to me. It's like like inherently art is incapable of capturing the totality of life. Like art necessarily fails. And I think that's a great starting point for any sort of empathetic exercise is to say I'm, I'm starting off and I don't know anything and I've got this all wrong. And, and the I rest just is try and build <laughs> it as opposed to starting so off and thinking I'm I want I want to get into the bottom drawer of Robert Lukens or it sounds like <laughs> it's actually an entire library probably of, of yeah. novels that haven't been written, which is mm-hmm. so interesting because this is your second. Yep. And so seeing on the, on the book that this is your second book, yep. obviously – 
then I say, okay, you're an emerging writer, but mm-hmm. clearly you're not because you've been doing this for a long time. When did you start writing and have you made the leap yet into full-time writing? Answer the second part first. Absolutely not. But um, I would I would love it if <laughs> that was – I think mainly it's – a. I don't know, I'm, I'm torn about that because um, obviously it's, it would seem what would be amazing to be a full-time writer and some things are happening in the background that, you know, maybe I'll get closer to that over the next couple of years. But there's an incredible freedom – to not being tied to that. I know I have friends who are full-time writers and there's an, there's an incredible veil of anxiety that goes over a writer when suddenly you have deadlines that really mean something. Deadlines mean your livelihood. And I think there's I, – I have this incredible – So what do you do? I work at Melbourne University. I work in mental health research. I've been doing that for quite a long time and I have a very, very wonderful boss who is very encouraging in my writing and I have a, I'm very lucky that my job is very flexible and I can sort of manage around things. But – Every single word of this novel, every last word was written on the train to work. Same with my last novel. I just write on the train. On a laptop? Or on a laptop. Or long, long on a laptop. So I catch, I deliberately catch a very, well, for, it's different now, obviously, because we're all locked down at home. But um, this novel was completed just, I suppose, the, the initial draft that was accepted for publication was finished a week before lockdown started, before the pandemic came. Um, so I would always catch the very early train. I'd catch a 5.50 train in the morning and it was a 45-minute journey to work and I'd get that early train because it wasn't busy and I would sit in the same corner and I'd cr- cross-legged, open the laptop and I had 40 minutes to write. And that's how I wrote this entire novel and the one before and everything else because I don't have any other time in my day. But there's something – I've been writing for very, very – so I wrote my first novel when I was 14 and I've basically written novel every year ever since then. It was my great – it's just about 10 years into that, I, st- I stopped thinking about writing so long ago in terms of I don't wake up and think, oh, should I have a write today? It's just what I do in the same way that, you know, I know people who are addicted to going to the gym or going for a run and they don't think about it. They wake up and if they don't go to the gym, they start to feel itchy. They start to feel like, I feel like that with writing. If, I, if something happens and I can't write in a day, oh, I get I get all frustrated and I get all uneasy and I have to go and write. And it's just, it's habit as much as anything else, but it's just so woven into the fabric of so my do life. So are you suffering from imposter syndrome here, do you think? No, only Good, be, not because, because <laughs> these things, the books are great. Well, thank you, but it's, it's not even to do with that. I think the one positive, and I sh- I've analysed this so much. So I wrote between the age of 14 and 40, I wrote a novel every year that I never let anyone else read. And I worked so hard on those things. It was all – it was my – everything else was to support that. And so what it did do, it developed a very unhealthy relationship to publishing because there was places along the way where I was just – it was this strange – But you weren't pitching the novel. No, I was just – So why were you angry with the publishing and you could have – No, but it was more this – it was a self-protection. You know, we all have to find ways to get through so this. You're so you're afraid of rejection. I, I suppose so. Like that's the – that would be what a – that would be the obvious solution. But it was my way of – yeah, exactly, getting through it. I couldn't be – I couldn't be rejected if they never even got to see it. It was this way. I just kept telling myself was, I'm going to learn my craft. I'm going to teach. But also I had this, I've never taken a writing class. I've never read a book about writing. I got real chip on my shoulder about it. And I think it was, it obviously was self-protection because this well, was the thing I loved more than anything. What if I couldn't the, do it? <laughs> praise the Lord that you sent that that manuscript to yeah. University of Queensland Press. Yeah, and I think to be really? honest, the only reason that happened, I think it wasn't that I had some great breakthrough or just had a but I was just tired I really just started to think genuinely I don't know how long I can keep doing this for and how do you feel now it's it's interesting you said before about whether I am or I'm not an emerging writer I absolutely am because I am I'm just beginning this journey I'm only just shedding all these kind of unhealthy approaches to writing that writing has to be this grinding, painful, awful, all-consuming, terrible experience, I feel like all that weight is lifted from me. And it's because I now, I think I can, I don't have to hide from this kind of, because this is what I love more than anything. This is the way I exist in the world is writing. And before, the idea that I, this thing that meant so much to me, if I couldn't do it, what if I stunk? How, how, how would I compute that sort of psychically? And now that I've, I've, I can get books published, it seems. I can just let all that go and actually exist with this. And I've had just the most incredible experience with this because I now realise that whereas before I thought the writing experience was 100% the writing, now I realise that's 
that's 50% of it because the other 50% are people reading it. And it's kind of this, this like breathing. It's like the inhalation is the. So you see, we're taking writing. your we're taking your characters, and we're now doing things with them. <laughs> yeah, aren't we? but I realize what a what an absolute honor, and what a like I just cherish that experience so much, and it's why. And I think because the the one good thing that came out of those twenty five years of writing by myself is I have just a complete sort of mental separation between writing and publishing. They're two completely separate things, and I cherish both equally but for instance so I'm not afraid of a bad review I'm not afraid that's just what a, what a joy that my biggest problem in my life is a newspaper might write a bad review of my book like what an amazing opportunity to have so I just and it well, annoys all my friends who are writers because I just have a lovely time all the time well that's <laughs> a lovely segue because I did want to read this before we close today so BJ Silcox who's a terrific reviewer with The Guardian Australia in the March review of Loveland, this is what BJ wrote. In my mental bookshelf, Robert Lucan's debut novella, the 2018's The Everlasting Sunday, sits alongside volumes like Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety and Richard Yates' The Easter Parade, novels of lavish melancholy and human grace. Thomas Savage's The Power of the Dog is on that shelf, as is John Knowles' A Separate Piece and an obligatory copy of John Williams' Stoner, Quiet Classics. I don't think there is a better <laughs> review in Australia going around than that. Being an absolute, I adore Stoner. Yeah. I It is in my top three, as is Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. Our producer, Mindy, would be wholeheartedly agreeing <laughs> with me there. So this is pretty fine praise for you. And I just wanted to just pick up on what you've said about full-time or part-time writing. Mm. I hope the Alban- somebody from the Albanese government is listening <laughs> to this interview, and I hope particularly Tony Burke, the Arts Minister, We talk so often about our nation's artists and creators punching above their weight. Mm. And I think in particular with writers, we are world-class, whatever that term means. And your novel would sit comfortably in that top 10 section of Barnes & Noble in New York or Daunt's Bookshop or wherever it may be in London. And I just lament the obstacles. I, I worry about the obstacles that Australian publishers and their writers face all the time, mainly because we have a small reading population here. But is there no way that we can find more funding for our writers? Is there no way that we can look at promoting them in bigger and more meaningful ways internationally? And Robert Lukens, you are an example of what we need to do better and stronger. You need to get off that train and back into your (laughs) study and, and pulling out the, all, all those manuscripts. So my next question was going to be, so what's your next novel? But it sounds like you've probably got about 25 of them in your drawer. <laughs> I, Are you working on another one for publication? I am. I am. Right, and good I think, to hear. Yeah, and I have, I just, I honestly feel like I'm at the start of this process. Even though I spent all those years writing by myself, I'm only truly starting to learn about my own writing now. I really am. And I feel, I feel more energised and optimistic now than I ever have. Because I'm, I can, I'm just fully opening my mind and my heart to that. I can, I've got so much to learn. I've got so many people to learn from, and it's just been incredible. Like before, my first novel was published, I'd never met another writer, and now I genuinely feel like they're my peers. I meet these people. I just came back from the Sydney Writers Festival, and and I don't feel like a, a phony. And it's not because I think I'm so great. It's just because it's it's just such a welcoming. Um, amazing community like even and there's all these incredible writers in Australia and they very secretly help everyone they mm. very secretly go around I think it is because everyone knows what the precarious condition of this and how hard it is so we're all just a bunch of honestly from the from someone who's just released a book through a small publisher through to the big high flyers we kind of all know each other and talk to each other well, and help it's, it's each other. That, it's the helping and the camaraderie and, the, and yeah. the willingness to share. Nobody is kind of driven by competition or ego. They're very willing to share. Before we finish, of course, I must ask you our usual question, which is, you know, we know that great writers are inspired by other great writers. If you were on that desert island mm. and if you had to, as the ship was sinking, grab <laughs> someone or something, some book or some collection of works, what would mm. it be? I've thought hard about this because I wanted to give you – an. Absolutely honest answer. So I think it's it's the book that I probably feel the deepest personal connection to, and I feel such a connection to it that I I can't even think I can't even 
analyze whether it's the greatest book ever or the worst book. It's um, Evelyn Waugh's Brideheads Revisited, which is Evelyn Waugh was probably the first writer that I obviously I just read voraciously my entire life. But in my early 20s, I think I, I read I read Brideshead before I read any other Evelyn Waugh books. And it was the first book that I truly, truly went to that place of this is the deepest, most wonderful thing in my life. And that book meant so much to me. And then I just devoured Evelyn Moore's books. And he's probably the, the author that I, he's the only author that I collect his books. I have, I think about 15 copies of Brideshead Revisited. And again, so I, I can't, I don't know if it's a great book. I, I suspect it is, um, but Brideshead Revisited is, it's just such a, um, I think Evelyn Moore, because of his, the persona that he's created around himself and the kind of, I think people remember some of the scenes from the Brideshead BBC series and I think a lot of people haven't actually read the book. And if you read the book, it's an incredibly sensitive book. Evelyn Moore would love to project this idea to the world that he was this gruff country gent. Mm. Um, but there's a this moment, the moment in, in, especially in the mid-period of his books, um, Handful of Dust and, and even Put Out More Flags, around that kind of era, he finally exposes this very it's kind of broken, sensitive in, um, side to himself. And it's all mixed in with the humour and, and obviously just the incredible writes like an angel, but he can he could do that in his sleep. But um it's when he exposes the kind of fragile nature of of himself and his characters that he he gets something. So I suspect if it's if he's an author that people have you know, he's just one of those authors you hear about. And Brideshead people think, oh I know that. It's just kind of like posh people in a big house and it read that book. It's such a sensitive portrayal of love and pain mm, and, and loss of religion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, all of that. Robert, it's been great to meet you. I have to congratulate you again on Loveland by Robert Lukens, who's been our guest today. It's published by Alan and Unwin. And Poddies, if you are in a book club, may I suggest that you put Loveland on your list so that your group can tackle this? In some of the situations, even Robert himself doesn't know the answers no. necessarily. So we'll be looking forward to hearing what you make of it. Robert, thanks for joining us on the Book Pod. Thanks so much for having me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.